Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Vladimir Putin in an expansionist Russia. Joining us now is the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Gori Shaki, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and former deputy director of policy planning at the State Department, as well as a former member of the National Security Council prior to that. Gori, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Now, there's a lot to cover here, even only looking at the past couple of decades at, at history. Let's start here. You open your piece at Strategica talking about Ukraine by noting that Ukraine gained its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. You then go on to say it squandered the subsequent 20 years. What went wrong? Why weren't they able to capitalize on the independence? That's a great question. Um, Partly it's the failure of governance that they didn't establish a transparent um, system of government, and they didn't handle the transition of their economy, which was largely state-owned large mining companies and such. Um, And so what you had was just the country sinking in a morass of corruption and bad governance. And we've not only seen that once, we've seen that twice. It happened again after the Orange Revolution. My favorite statistic on this uh, that just shows how much Ukraine might have done that they didn't is that in 1991, when when the Soviet Union ended, the Warsaw Pact uh, had also ended. And in 1991, Poland and Ukraine had the same per capita GDP in their countries. Now Poland is three times richer. What about the Orange Revolution, which you mentioned, 2004? At, at that point, there's a lot of hope in the air that Ukraine can sort of break the orbit of its history, become a prosperous Western nation. For, for our audience, explain what the Orange Revolution was about and why did it fail to live up to those hopes? Mm-hmm. So the Orange Revolution was a, a protest by average Ukrainians. It was a public uproar over uh, – the corruption of the political class generally, and specifically what looked to be an election that was um, stolen, I think in in the Orange Revolution, Ukrainians were themselves not really pleased with their choices between uh, Yulia Tymoshenko and uh, and Vladimir Yanukovych, but but they at least wanted the process to be respected. And I think that kind of exasperation is finally what drove Ukrainians to revolution this last winter, that they don't actually want to be a corrupt backwater. And people are finally trying to grab hold of the levers of governance and force it to be accountable to its public. Well, let's talk about that history, the recent history, really the history of the past few months. This Turmoil in Ukraine is preceded by President Yanukovych choosing an alliance with Russia over the West. I mean, everybody knows that fact, but explain why did he do that? Why the pivot into Putin's arms when it looked like it may have gone the other direction prior to that? 
I share Ambassador Mike McFall's view that Yanukovych was probably never going to sign the EU agreement. And the reason I think he wasn't was that the European countries were very judiciously demanding the kind of governance reforms and transparency in economic reactions excuse me, in economic interactions that would make Yanukovych's political power unsustainable. So I think he was playing footsie with the Europeans to drive up the negotiating price with Vladimir Putin for what Ukraine would get in terms of cheap um, energy, in terms of political latitude uh, in the deal that he was making with the Russians. The argument that you hear advanced by the Russians in regard to the Crimea quite often is that they're they're there in a protective role. They're there to protect that population because there was this this movement initially where it seemed like there might be some hostility towards a population that was had cultural and historical ties to Russia and linguistic ties. Uh, that's the line from Moscow. Do the people in the region, the Russian population in Crimea, do they think they're being protected as Moscow says? Well, I think Moscow ruthlessly capitalized on political concerns that Russian speakers in Ukraine had. I think the most important thing to understand is that Russians were under no threat of violence, either in Crimea or in eastern Ukraine, and are not now. What, what, what they were fearful about was an ebbing away of political rights and protections, and they had some basis for that. You know, one of the first laws that the new legislature in Kiev passed after the revolution drove Yanukovych from power last winter uh, was the, to, to remove Russia as an official language in the country. And that frightened people, and they worried about the tenor of how politics would evolve, and the Russians and Russian-owned and controlled media capitalized on that to to foster people's fears. You talk about in your piece at Strategica the way that the Russians used paramilitary forces first in the Crimea before any sort of more conventional military forces came in. Is that a pattern that you think we should expect to see replicated as a way for the Russians to sort of test the fences as it were if, if they continue with this kind of expansionism? That's a great question, and I share your concern that this is Russia's version of asymmetric warfare, right? Because they don't actually want to pay the political costs of a full-scale military invasion of Ukraine, and they fear that we might actually counter it. And there's absolutely no doubt that not just the United States military could defeat the Russian military, but that most of the NATO militaries acting by themselves, much less in concert, could also do so. And so what the Russians are trying to do is carry out a strategy that's paramilitary, so they have deniability, they have time while people figure out what's happening, and it capitalizes on the thuggish behavior that that the, the gray area of state thuggishness that, Russians suffer from domestically inside Russia as well. You mentioned in your piece at Strategica that one of the ways that the Ukrainian government has tried to deal with some of the sectional tensions within the country is to float the idea of decentralizing more power, giving more regional control, regional autonomy. Mm -hmm. if, if that plays out, 
does that have in your judgment the effect that clearly the Ukrainian government is hoping it will have, which is to relieve some of these tensions? Or does that actually, because of the devolution, increase the chance of the country pulling further apart? It's a really important question. I think the honest answer is it depends. It depends on whether the Kiev government is fleet-footed enough to be able to reassure Russian speakers' concerns, to be able to show people a positive future where they have the regional autonomy that will feel culturally comfortable to them, but that they will have the rule of law and the governance and the economic transparency that most Ukrainians are honestly thirsting for. I know you saw today that... Um, that the Russians uh, are saying they will pull their troops back from the border and are now discouraging a referendum by Ukraine's eastern provinces. <laughs> the reason they're discouraging the referendum is because it would have lost. It would have failed. 60% of Ukrainians, actually more than that, almost 70% of Ukrainians, even in the eastern provinces, want Ukraine to remain a united country. So I am more confident that some people are, that regional autonomy can be encouraged and that that will defang the concerns of Russian speakers in Ukraine. Let's turn for a moment to the American response. There seem to be two major schools of thought on the way that the Obama administration has responded or in some cases not responded, one being that the limited action that we've taken is – a prudential sign of restraint, a realistic sort of recognition of how limited our options are. The other, of course, being that it's an indicator of, of weakness or indecision. Which way do you read it? Well, um, I think uh, it's largely indecision, but I'm not unsympathetic. I believe that Putin has read our choices as timidity, as an unwillingness to get involved, as an inability to rally and organize Europeans and ourselves to take tough action. I don't think that is necessarily a fair reading, but that's what I think Putin took from it. The challenge that the administration has, in my judgment, in Ukraine is that Vladimir Putin's advantages are all near-term right? Intimidation, capitalizing on the fears of Russian speakers. Um, our advantages are principally longer term. The, the failing Russian economy, the fact that Russia has no allies and no supporters for their behavior beyond Belarus and Venezuela, which is, you know, hardly a cheering section that should make them feel like they're on the upswing in this. Um, and Chancellor Merkel, the German chancellor, it's taken her time to get German business to a point where they weren't as overtly opposing sanctions. It's a hard political challenge for her, but I think she's actually pulling it off, and it takes time to organize that, and I think that's why, um, uh, that's why we have looked even more ineffective than we should have. Do you have any faith in the ability of those sanctions to work? I do. I actually really do, for a couple of reasons. The, the sanctions that we have put on so far aren't much, but they have targeted individuals close to Putin, and they have also tentatively suggested that sec sectoral sanctions on banking, on energy, um, will be in the offing if Russia continues to 
to try and dismember Ukraine. And it it has two providential purposes. First, when Russia last was trying to intimidate Ukraine in 2005, Europeans were so worried about their exposure to Russian uh, gas and oil that they've actually worked pretty assiduously to try and reduce it, and they have reduced it from 30% to 20%. I think one of the things we can expect from the, even from the timid sanctions that have put in, been put into place is that Western businesses will be very hesitant to enter into long-term deals with Russian businesses because of the potential for future sanctions. So it will cast a pall over a Russian economy that has very little latitude for absorbing that. The former uh, Russian finance minister has uh, been a clarion voice arguing that Russian GDP growth is going to be zero this year and it will be worse as a result of sanctions and that the Putin government really needs to take on board the economic consequences of their political choices. What do you make of the argument – I suppose it's really arguing more about the, the past, although it has implications for the future. What do you make about the argument that if you understand Russia's national character, that there was always going to be a sense of uh, insecurity and perhaps paranoia and that maybe NATO went too far, maybe NATO moved too far to the east and that that was inevitably going to cause the Russians to be unsettled, not necessarily to this extent, but that – that expansion could be interpreted as provocative in Moscow. Mm -hmm. I don't buy it, although I once did. In 1991, when I was working in the Pentagon and NATO issues, I was skeptical that NATO expansion would actually be a good thing for security in Europe. It seemed to me at that time that... Uh, Central Europe's security ran through Moscow, and if we could build the kind of relationship with the Russians that made them cease to be a threat to Poland, that that would be the best possible outcome. But I pretty quickly lost confidence that that was possible, because the limit on Russia's cooperation with European countries and with NATO and with the United States has been Russia. They haven't been able to get themselves to a perspective where they see that what is good for Poland is also good for Russia, that a, a stable and peaceful and prosperous and democratic Russia is uh, will be a good neighbor, and a, a Poland that is similarly constituted will be a good neighbor to Russia. And I think the reason is that the Russians lacked confidence they could be successful on those terms. And I think that's why it didn't work. That, that the Russians actually didn't become Poland. Um, and so the, their aggrieved sense of importance, as you suggest, gets reinforced by being a bully. But I don't believe that was an inevitable consequence of any of our decisions at the end of the Cold War or later. I think the Russians made a series of choices that were about... Um, their their own sense of lost empire once they lost confidence they could be successful on the terms that Western countries are successful. Final question in the let's say short term and and maybe the midterm, what's the best plausible outcome of this situation? What what does the United States and the West have to do to get there? I think the best plausible outcome of this situation is Vladimir Putin realizing that he cannot domestically uh, 
control Russia repressively as he wants to. That, you know, one of the arguments that I have found persuasive about Russia's behavior in Ukraine is that the reason this so alarmed Putin and he took such risky and damaging actions was that he feared that the insistence of Ukrainians that they wanted a government that was accountable to them and honest was building steam inside Russia itself. The protests of last year um, and the way that the Putin government has been cracking down on the Internet, on freedom of speech, on NGOs operating, on political organizations. I, I think the best possible outcome is what's happened in Ukraine happening in Russia. But I grant you um, that's probably not the likeliest outcome of this. I think for Ukrainians, the best possible outcome, we actually are on a trajectory to, which is the government in Kiev uh, getting politically smart very fast, rushing to reassure Ukrainians of Russian descent and who feel strong cultural ties to Russia, that those ties will be respected in a government in a Ukraine that is governed well and transparently. And I do think the May 25th elections will be a big step forward in that regard. And I think the Russians trying to discourage a referendum demonstrates the extent to which the government in Kiev has succeeded at reassuring Ukrainians of that. Our guest has been Corey Shockey, research fellow at the Hoover Institution and former deputy director of policy planning at the State Department. You can read her piece and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting strategica at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Corey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.